Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel, Marketing Manager for Amos Media and Editor of the CoinWorld Podcast. I wanted to let you know about a special offer we have right now. As a part of CoinWorld's 60th anniversary celebration, we are offering a free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's Digital Edition. If you don't subscribe to CoinWorld or you subscribe to the print edition, now is your chance to check out what the Digital Edition has to offer absolutely free. Our Digital Edition comes straight to your inbox, so you don't even have to leave the house to head to your mailbox. To start your free 30-day trial, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Hurry though, this offer expires May 31st, 2020. Again, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial to start your free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the 60th episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. We are delighted to be here today. We are going to explore the wide world of COVID-19-related numismatic items, as well as uh, using that as a springboard to talk about some historical issues and our usual foray into numismatic history, trivia, and more. And if you enjoy this episode, if you've enjoyed any of our previous episodes, if it's been a good quarantine companion for you, please remember to keep on listening every week. And if it's possible and you want to, remember to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Every single listen and every single new subscriber, not only does it mean a great deal to us, but it helps us to continue producing the show. So again, remember, keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. So As Jeff alluded to, we're going to be talking about COVID collectibles. I wrote on this for a recent CoinWorld Weekly. I'm not sure if the article is online yet or not. It is online if you are a subscriber to the digital edition. Now, you're thinking, oh, but I'm not a subscriber. I haven't paid. That's okay. Right now, there's a free 30-day trial to CoinWorld.com to the digital edition. So you can sign up today whenever you're listening before the end of May, I believe. You'll have 30 days of access. You can go look at all of the digital editions that are there in the archive, I believe, back to somewhere around 2019, uh, 2013, not 19, 2013. Uh, that would, of course, include the recent weekly that was published within the last few weeks that has Chris's article that's sort of the genesis of our discussion today. So do check that out. That is something that I think we mentioned it a few weeks ago, but we should mention that again because you know, it's free. Just sign up, put the email address in, easy peasy, and you can spend hours looking at all sorts of numismatic content till your heart is content. You can go back and see all of Jeff's and my work that has only appeared in print. Tons, as well. and tons honestly, of that. Actually, tons of that that's only in print. Jeff, a lot of your stuff goes online. Some of my stuff goes online. But what you see on the the free online content that Cone World provides is actually only a fraction of what's written. So if you want to check out Jeff's and my written work or any of our other estimable colleagues. And freelancers. And uh, yeah, I mean. Well, and honestly, it's also just a good way to support the podcast as well. If you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy the show, supporting Coin World supports the podcast. Yeah. So if you subscribe to the digital edition or if you decide to get the print edition that helps us as well this is all to say that the article about which we're talking about appeared in a print edition so tell me about (laughs) some of the items you found in your research for this article we went back and forth talking about a couple of them you and i just personally 
let's bring that to the listeners. As the COVID pandemic has gone on, a number of different firms have started creating sort of COVID-related collectibles. Often during challenging times, organizations will commission what are called challenge coins. I'd actually love to do an episode dedicated to challenge coins at some point, because not only are they very interesting, but they're a numismatic or, and more precisely an exonumic item that a lot of people come across, actually. In fact, every once in a while, we'll get a, a reader question for a reader's ask column. Every once in a while, we'll get someone asking about a challenge coin they've found. I have one or two that are either challenge coins or objects that are similar. So challenge coins are something that a lot of people come across because they're not exactly common, but it's a, a common numismatic, more precisely exonumic item that oftentimes will get passed down through families or people just kind of happen upon. So Challenge coins, very briefly, again, this is a topic that I would really like to explore in greater depth in a future episode, but for the purposes of today's discussion, I just want to give a really quick overview. Challenge coins aren't, they're not really coins at all, they're metals, which is why they're an exonumic item as opposed to a numismatic item, but challenge coins are metals that are created by a wide variety of different organizations, and they can commemorate any number of different things. Now, challenge coins originate, some of the first challenge coins were issued by the military. Essentially, individual units or branches of the military would create these challenge coins, would create these medals and give them to members of these different units or branches of the service in recognition of different milestones. You might get a challenge coin if you complete some kind of training regimen. You might get a challenge coin if you served a certain number of years, or you know, it might commemorate an event that all of the members of a branch might have done together. They can be used to commemorate a wide variety of things, but other non-military organizations began issuing challenge coins as well. For example, during the government shutdown, a challenge coin appeared acknowledging the difficulty that furloughed federal employees were facing with not getting a paycheck. Many challenge coins often have humorous or satirical inside jokes for the organization or military unit or other group that issues them. We'll often have sort of, you know, little satirical in-jokes or references to some shared group experience. So in the case of COVID, tons of organizations have started issuing them, and mainly they're organizations of first responders. There have been different hospitals or police groups, and really any first responder you can imagine, and some essential workers. Different groups have been creating coins uh, to be passed out for these groups. There are numerous mints that just focus on making these challenge pieces. And why are they called challenge coins? We can get into that later in depth, as you say. But the story goes, in a military context, everyone in the unit was out drinking and somebody would challenge the others to present their coin. And if you did not have yours with you, bingo, you're on the hook for buying the next round. So... It's a fun little anecdote that highlights how they originated and, as you know, uh, have come to have a much more broad meaning. In recent years, local politicians, cities use these. Here in Sydney, Ohio, where Coin World is, they have a challenge coin that somebody in the police department is allowed to present to a citizen that did a good deed, you know, whether they stopped a mugger or, you know, one of those quintessential, you know, Superman type escapades, you know, somebody rescued in the, the river or any good deed anyway. And, and and so that idea has now been brought forth to 
what's happening today. What did you find? Uh, how many different items? What were some of the designs? Oh, a whole bunch. One that I found particularly interesting, uh, again, if you read the article, I believe I included an image of it. One actually referenced the Oregon Trail, the video game you know that was popular years and years ago. Before your time. <laughs> Actually, I remember playing an updated version of the Oregon Trail on, like, school computers in, like, second or third grades, which would have been right around 2003, 2004. When I was in, you know, second and third grade in the 80s, that's what we were playing, uh, late 80s, early 90s. (laughs) We were playing a slightly more updated version than the sort of green on black uh, side scroller, totally 2D thing that back from back in the 80s. We played a slightly updated version. I would have to go back and try to find all the different versions to determine exactly. But anyway, so you didn't die of dysentery. What's the... The joke is that, as anyone who's played the Oregon Trail would know, one of the sort of events that can happen to your character as you move your way west is that you can die of dysentery. And that's kind of become a bit of a meme. You know, people be like, oh, you died of dysentery as sort of a joking reference to the Oregon Trail. Uh, This one referenced COVID in that context, which was... A little dark, but also kind of amusing. And there's an organization in Provincetown, a first responder organization in Provincetown, Massachusetts. So in my neck of the woods, out on Cape Cod at the very end, Provincetown, there's a first responder organization that commissioned a challenge coin that showed a bunch of Corona beers, the Mexican beer brand Corona that had a bunch of those. There was a first responder training group um, somewhere in Appalachia. I can't remember exactly where that referred to COVID-19 and the sort of ensuing lockdowns and all of the unfolding events as Operation Enduring. I can't say this on the air, actually. Well, it contained an epithet that starts with cluster that I probably shouldn't say on the podcast. Um, Cluster of nuts. uh, Yeah, sure. It it almost rhymes with that. So so the point is uh, a wide variety of organizations have commissioned challenge coins that oftentimes with uh, a humorous eye, are sort of looking at COVID and reflecting on the added pressure that it's put onto their work. And I know that all of us, everyone who's listening, you know, we are all thankful to first responders and essential employees who are, you know, making people's lives not only bearable, but in some cases are saving people's lives. And so the challenge coins are sort of an interesting way that these organizations have chosen to commemorate the difficult time that they and all of us are going through. Now, there are other classes of COVID. Yeah, I was going to say the challenge coins are, you know, relatively limited as far as availability, right? Because they're not meant to reach outside of that intended specific audience. They're not really meant to circulate. There are a couple of challenge coins that are being produced by different organizations that you can buy. In fact, one of the major firms that's been taking a lot of these orders actually created, instead of taking custom orders for challenge coins, for specific organizations, they created sort of a, a stock design. Okay, yeah. The stock design just features symbols of all of the different branches of first responders and with a depiction of the virus on one side. You know, you've seen images of it. And so a certain percentage of sales of that stock design are going to be donated to um, relief organizations. So that sort of model of using the sales as a a benefit, a fundraiser, a feel good for folks who are affected that are helping people, that's crossed over into bullion. Yeah, it has. Jeff and I both notice this, and anyone who's a member of any of the, the coin collecting and coin auction Facebook groups might have noticed this as well in the last month or so. 
A couple of different firms, but notably Envila, a re-commerce firm, has been creating a, a 10-ounce silver bullion bars. Now, the bars depict the virus, as so many of these different uh, numismatic, exonumic, or in this case, bullion items do. And Envila is donating the net proceeds from the sale of the 10-ounce silver bars to support COVID-19 relief efforts. And also, one-ounce silver rounds have appeared as well. These have been selling fairly well. They have text on them that alludes to the fact that they were minted during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so far, we've seen the April version is out. I have not yet seen, but I understand that there will be a new design every month. So there'll be an April, there'll be a May. And of course, uh, you know, epidemiologically, we know that this could last a while, you know, because of all the the factors of of how it takes for a pandemic to be addressed. This may be a, you know, five, six, eight. We we don't know how many different issues could exist from this series, but they are supposedly doing new designs every month. Yeah. As you mentioned, I've seen the April ones as well. I don't know if the May is out yet, but in theory, they're going to be striking these for as long as the pandemic continues. They'll keep striking these silver bars. So, Jeff, Dan Carr, is it a metal? Is it a challenge coin? I would classify it as a metal. I look at this stuff, you know, a challenge coin to me is still a metal, both at a higher level thinking and a, you know, base level, you know, the definition of a metal that it fits a metal just because, it, you know, a challenge coin is a type of metal. So, what Dan Carr has done, and, and he's well known to the numismatic community, of course, for his work over the last 15 years. He has a press that used to be in the Denver Mint. He does his own design work, 3D design work, has his own 3D studio, and he does a lot of custom designs, often of a political nature. Uh, Not always, but he started out doing, quote unquote, Amero pieces, which was gosh, 15 years ago, maybe 14 years ago, something like that. The idea that there would be this North American union, it was very popular in some fringe websites and they were using his pieces, which, you know, his pieces were meant to sort of criticize it and focus attention on this possibility, but they were his. They were not an official, you know, he wasn't contracted by a government agency or anything except people use the tie-in that he had designed a couple U.S. coins and he designed some of the world coins and all that. We can explore that in a future episode. But they were using that as this the basis to say that these pieces were official. Well, Dan moved from that to some other designs. When the last recession was around 2008, 2009, he has a series. I have some of his bronze pieces with some great satirical political designs. Very neat stuff. He does everything he does through Moonlight Mint. He catalogs it on his website. He has three different websites, but you can go there and see exactly how many pieces were made of each version and all that. And the stuff often sells out rather quickly. There's a rabid following. He's done some other stuff, taking pieces, overstriking coins that didn't exist on coins that actually were struck, like the 1964 Peace Dollar, striking his design on a Peace Dollar that had been struck officially at the Mint. So there's a lot of cool stuff in Dan's story. All that being said, he has a satirical design related to the $1,200 stimulus payment that most Americans uh, have received or will receive. And those pieces, again, fit into this broader landscape 
of designs that are related to it. What what is very much, whether you like it or not, you know, this is a a public health crisis, but there are many elements of politics to it, right? So I see that his piece is a perfect parallel to the class of collectibles from back in the day that we know as Brian money. This was the in the mm. 1890s, there was this big push from the Western sovereign in- interest. We think of America as having never been more divided. And of course, if you go back in time, we can always see divisions, but a big division at that time and, and what became a, a big and important point in campaigning was this idea of 16 to one silver to gold ratio and free silver, and would the um, Western mining interest have their way? Would the Eastern bankers have their way? Where would agriculture fall into that? There's um, some great, I guess, uh, research and analysis that ties that whole debate into the L. Frank Baum story, Wizard of Oz, and you know the Yellow Brick Road, and so th- this Brian money. Yeah, we we talked to um, Jeffrey Frieden, I think, about this. Right. On our interview with Jeff Frieden, we actually talked about the connections between the Free Silver Movement and the Wizard of Oz. So if you haven't listened to that interview, go listen to it because not only is it a good interview, but it also references the anecdote that Jeff is talking about, which is the impact that the yeah. Free Silver Movement and some of the rhetoric surrounding it had on the Wizard of Oz. But don't you see some parallels there? You know, there was that the Brian money is a it's a narrow but fascinating area of the hobby and you know some of these pieces i have a couple of them they're ginormous they're not like a you know a regular morgan dollar size they're like twice as large in diameter oh yeah they're huge they're huge metals and the whole point was to say that to have a, a proper balance the the silver dollar would have to be this big there's fascinating economic and political history in that and i just see a lot of parallels between what dan has done and that now i just wrote about a series of coins from somewhere in africa chad right they have colorized whatever on a black proof finish and all that. That's a more modern opportunistic capitalistic take. That's different. What Dan has done, I think, again, really taps into that heritage of using numismatics as a vehicle to tell a story about current events. That Brian Money series, that's been a particular fascination for you, right, Chris? Yeah, it has. Brian Dollars are fascinating. I haven't really started my collection of them yet. They're not terribly hard to find, though you you're not, you won't find them in sort of every coin shop in any town. I mean, they're scarce. So I wouldn't describe them as rare. I find the free silver movement one of the most interesting aspects of American economic and numismatic history. Not only does it call up profound questions as to the nature of value and the sort of anchor of our monetary system or lack of an anchor as our discussions with uh, Stephen Mim and other people who deal with obsolete paper money, we've learned that there often wasn't an anchor at all. So it reminds me of a chapter in a book that I recently read and discussed on the podcast, uh, Michael O'Malley's Face Value, The Entwined Histories of Race and Money in America. It's a very complicated topic, but A lot of gold bugs, that is to say that people who favored the gold standard as being the basis of the US dollar, 
often invoked racialized language, uh, particularly about immigrants, because as more and more immigrants from more and more places flowed into the country in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a real anxiety about what it meant to be an American, a sort of what is the value of citizenship and what does it mean to be an American? And in trying to answer those questions, a lot of people fell back onto the supposedly stable value of gold. The term the gold standard was often invoked to describe an authentic version of something, you know, and and in a way we continue to deploy gold standard language like this today. And, you know, we describe things as the gold standard if it's the best good version as gold, of gold, all that. Right? Yeah, 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 good as gold. So in a time when definitions of citizenship, what it meant to be an American and who could be an American, when those questions were being very powerfully asked in the late 19th century, particularly wealthy, moneyed, and powerful Eastern banking interests, among other groups, often retreated back to this concept of, well, you know, real Americans use gold. And and if our dollar is going to have integrity, it needs to be based on gold. Now, the free silver movement, of course, was sort of the opposite of this, in the sense that they wanted the unlimited coinage of silver, Western mining interests particularly, but also farmers and debtors, people who favored the inflationary effects of the unlimited coinage of silver to ease debts or increase prices for crops at market. So they're called Bryan dollars because the populist candidate, William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president unsuccessfully in 1896, advocated for the unlimited coinage of silver and his opponent, William McKinley, who would ultimately win in the 1896 election and then would secure re-election in 1900. William McKinley was a gold bug. He was an advocate for the gold standard. And with his re-election in 1900, ultimately the gold standard act was passed. And we went and we had purely the gold standard, though silver dollars continued to be minted for another few years. We went on to just purely the gold standard. We sort of got rid of the bimetallic standard in 1900 with the passage of the gold standard act. So the Bryan dollars represent a really interesting moment in the history of our currency where there were two very different competing ideologies about what constituted money and what constituted value. I find these items to be fascinating sort of tangible testaments to this fascinating if very complex political yes and, and and again this is all to say though that you know I, I can't help but see the parallels of this broader issue you know obviously this the pandemic is a global event and the gold silver debate was was us specific but to see items commenting about current events it just is a, a reminder that i think it was mark twain who was reportedly said that history doesn't repeat itself it rhymes so i can see the rhyming <laughs> the in that today and it's funny you mentioned the gold standard because this week in history there was a very very important event tied to america's usage and later break free from the gold standard So it is now time for our This Week in History, where we go back all the way back, jumping forward from the 1896 campaign, but we go all the way to May 19th, 1933. 1933, what jumps out to you when you think of 1933? Well, the Great Depression, maybe numismatically you think of the $20 double eagle. And that is exactly the case this week. That was when production of the 1933 St. Gaudens gold $20 double eagle was halted or suspended at the Philadelphia mint. This is the coin of lore, only one legal to own. There are others that are in us federal property that were 
spirited out. Perhaps uh, there, there's lots of research that suggests they could have been legally sold out of the mint cashier's office, traded for other gold coins of the same specifications. There's great work regarding that. The book that uh, actually you're going to get this soon, Double Eagle. I sent that to you, Chris, but uh, yeah, by Alison Frankel. And there's, uh, you know, Roger Burdett is a a well-known numismatic author and expert. He's done some research on this as well. Coin World has published lots of articles about the 1933 Double Eagle, certainly uh, from the legal challenge 20 plus years ago when the piece that is believed to be the Farouk specimen surfaced. That was a transaction between Steve Fenton, a dealer out of London and dealers here in the United States. That piece ultimately was sold to an unknown buyer with half of the proceeds going to the federal government. If you're in the hobby, you know the story. If you're not, you should. It's a great one. It's just a classic, classic pillar of U.S. numismatic history. So that is uh, most appropriate, and I didn't plan this, but it's most appropriate based on where we just were talking to mention that this week in history. I believe it was the Farouk specimen that set the record. The record was has since been beaten, but it set the record for the most expensive coin ever to cross the auction block, yes. right? Yes. I think 2003. Uh, that sounds, no, 2002 would have been uh, the New York ANA, I believe, in 2002. That was in 2002. Yeah. Okay, the early aughts is what it really boils down and to. And so, you know, as you note, there's been other coins uh, uh, apparently have sold for more public record. There's some, some coins are led, are said to have sold in private transactions, but those are a little murky. It's fair game when it's a public record. It certainly is a most auspicious and important event from numismatic history. And, um, you know, it was on display actually in uh, New York at the, I believe the federal reserve bank there in an exhibit that the ANS helped curate the American numismatic society helped curate something about doubloons, drachmas, dollars, doubloons, drachmas, something like that. It's just, uh, it's one of those go-tos. If you're wanting to get somebody interested in the hobby and you're looking for a crazy wild story to tell them to really get their ears to perk up. That's one to tell them. Yeah. I mean, Hey, $7.59 million. That is uh that is far from chump change. Yeah. Anyway. So Jeff, we're, we're talking about the gold standard. Uh, we're talking about sort of monetary history. Let's, let's dive into some coin world history, but the issue of coin world that we're looking at this week actually comes right before an interesting chapter in, in our history with the gold standard and that we're looking at uh, an issue of coin world from May of 1970. And we would actually, the U S would officially and, in, and completely leave the gold standard the next year in 1971. So Jeff, what are some of the big stories that were on the front page of coin world in May, 1970? The two things that sort of jumped out at me as being related was uh, this story about a judge sentencing four people on producing counterfeits fake coin charges, the headline reads. And then also right next to that is the story that uh, a congressional body lauds the Secret Service activities. Well, what does the Secret Service have to do with this? You think Secret Service, they protect the president. Well, yes, that's true. But the Secret Service, as we've talked about here before, uh, originally was devised to help thwart counterfeiting. And that remains an important role today. That's why you have organizations like the Anti-Counterfeiting Educational Foundation that works with the Secret Service to educate 
agents. They work with customs and, and border patrol folks to be aware of the many, 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 many boatloads of fakes that are coming in, uh, particularly from China. This is a story that as long as the hobby has existed, there have been folks looking to take advantage of others and not even in, in, in a hobby standpoint. I mean, you go back to ancient times and People weren't collecting coins like they are today, although there's some I think there's some evidence that there were coin collections, but not you know not to the degree that we have, but it was uh, an economic tool, and so if you could make some money by counterfeiting, hey uh, you know uh, it beats honest work, I guess, although I wouldn't know <laughs> so that's sort of the thing that jumps out to me again highlights this um, history rhyming and, and not repeating itself. There was also a medal for the Stone Mountain Memorial, which we've talked about the Stone Mountain dollar, I believe, before. The memorial was finally completed in the late 60s, and they had a dedication sometime in April of 1970, and there were bronze and silver medals that were sold for this. So this is very much a 50 years ago. We're not going back 150 years to the Civil War. This is 50 years ago when Stone Mountain was being memorialized and built in honor of the Confederate cause. So what did you find uh, in the letters, Chris? So as always, I decided to dive in and check out what was on the mind of readers who wrote letters in for the May 20th, 1970 issue. So I'll start off with a very brief one that resonated with me personally, just because, again, it references my home state and almost my hometown. In fact, in fact, references a coin club whose meetings I have attended. So it's very brief. It reads, thanks to Coin World, it was instrumental in my locating a coin club nearby, the Collector's Club of Boston from Rose de Rosa in Arlington, Massachusetts. So Collector's Club of Boston is a club whose meetings, as I just said, I have actually attended. So seeing the name of a club that I'm familiar with and whose members I know personally, uh, seeing a reference to that from 1970, um, I, I just got a real kick out of that. You know, I saw I saw Collector's Club Boston in Arlington, Massachusetts, and you know, I my eyes kind of zoomed right in on that letter. So I found that that was kind of fun. We are missing our local coin clubs uh, here. The Shelby County Coin Club was supposed to have just had its show the other day, and of course, we haven't had our monthly meetings since March. So coin clubs are an important aspect to the hobby. What else did you see? So I saw two others that I found interesting and to some extent amusing. The next one comes from a man named Thomas J. Byrne from El Dorado, Arkansas. And he writes, in your latest issue, you carry a front page story about the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and state, quote, also the Bureau has purchased two high-speed currency presses, which are to be delivered this year. They cost 40% more than identical presses, which were purchased by the Bureau four years ago. The impact of spiraling costs and inflation. I'm not an economics major, but I believe I may detect some degree of correlation between the underlying statements. The BEP has my sympathy, and I'm not even allowed to print my own money. So I just thought that was a, that was a funny comment <laughs> about, you know, not only increasing inflation, but the cost of equipment that the BEP had to purchase. And I just found the quip about I'm not even allowed to print my own money kind of funny, because even though the BEP itself doesn't necessarily control the currency, it controls the currency supply to the extent that it prints the currency, but the Federal Reserve has, yeah, you know, they order more it. of a say. The Fed orders it. Right, exactly. The Federal Reserve orders it, the BEP produces it. So even though technically it's the Fed, not the BEP, that's responsible for currency policy and possible resulting inflation, I found the comment sort of amusing. The last one comes from a man named Frank J. Caggiano, Caggiano, anyway, from Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. 
he writes, I've just read the sad story about Bill Holder's bout with 12 one half bags with 1970 S cents. I guess the bank should not have called him unless they could guarantee all the cents they had to offer could be sold for $5 each instead of just $1 a roll. The only time my bank calls me is to alibi about my last deposit not being correctly recorded. <laughs> Boy, talk about service. They took time to give him $12.50 from 25 bags. He must be a stockholder. So in 1970, um, there were some Lincoln cents. There were 1970S Lincoln cents, uh, which were a distinct variety that is to this day relatively sought after by collectors. And I gather that a bank went through and tried to find 1970S cents out of large bags. And this guy was remarking that that was rather a nice thing for the bank. To I detect a slight bit of jealousy and sarcasm in his letter. <laughs> just, I, I detected that just too. a wee bit <laughs> just a wee bit he must be a stockholder right so anyway so those are some letters that stood out to me that i found particularly interesting i found the reference to the 1970 s sense interesting so that's pretty much what was going on uh, on the letters page for may 20th 1970 so now we've read off some letters and we've read off some headlines from a, an, an old issue of coin world from 1970 Jeff, what are you reading outside of Coin World? Obviously, we love reading Coin World magazine, but you know we're starting to talk about books and and sort of talking about what's on our bookshelves, what we're reading. What have you been delving into? So this morning, somebody from the advertising department contacted me and sent me a snapshot of a post from Facebook. Somebody posted these on Facebook. These were trade tokens from a town here in Shelby County, Ohio, where Coin World is based. And wanted to know more about them. So I said, oh, that's easy. I just have to go to my bookshelf and pull out Ohio Merchant Tokens, second edition, by Gaylor Lipscomb. And I flip the page and there's Fort Lormie and, you know, look it up and, yep, that's the one. And it's, you know, he gives it a rarity rating as such and such. That is a great book. I've had it for probably 10 years now not a page turner. It's, it's just basic information listed. You know, it's, it's not, there's no story there to it, but it's a good resource. And it speaks to the bevy of resources that are available in the merchant token arena. And not only did I refer to the book, then I went to tokencatalog.com uh, that's not really. That is a, that is a very useful. It is wonderful. It, it is not. Uh, it is not on a bookshelf, but it is online, and it's free to have a membership, and that will give you all sorts of information. You don't need to have a membership to access most of the information. However, pricing data is only available if you log in and all that jazz. And so I was able to using the Lipscomb book using the website, I go, oh, okay, this was issued about this time. This person found these tokens metal detecting, apparently found like a dozen of them. And so I've reached out to the person to see if, if we can get some more story about where they found them and all that. But that speaks to the value of having a state specific token catalog. Not all states have them. We're fortunate in Ohio to have the catalog, the hard copy. Bruce Smith is a well-known collector, researcher, particularly in Asian numismatics, Chinese stuff. But Bruce, like myself, is a Missouri homeboy, show me state. And he, for 30 or 40 years, has been compiling information on Missouri tokens, but has recently been derailed by some health challenges. So if you were like me, you know, I live in Ohio, so I bought the Ohio book. I would love to have a Missouri book since I'm from there and I collect tokens from Missouri. 
in lieu of that, when you don't have a book, you can at least go to the website and do keyword search. You get images in, in so many cases of these tokens. If you log in, you can often see, and of course they don't track everything. Like it's, it's a, a lot of it's all volunteer, but people will put sales records from eBay. They'll say eBay, March, 2017 sale. And you can go, oh, okay, it's sold for $8. And you can't know like condition always. So it, it's not perfect information, but it's great starting point. With tokens, condition is not as important. Certainly in the US numismatic sense, we, we look at every um, every digit on the, the grade scale when you're looking uh, in mint state and all below, you know, many of the others in that Sheldon scale tokens, their value is in the history they tell, the utilitarianism. And, you know, you often see many folks that were commenting on this post in Facebook that are around this area where the tokens were issued. They want a piece just because it reflects their local heritage and their local history. And so the object becomes more valuable for what it represents in that regard, you're going to be hard pressed, I think, to find a buyer for a Fort Lormie, Ohio token that is in Oregon, say. Um, you know. <laughs> yeah, I bought a few Troy, Ohio tokens when I was living in Ohio, yeah. which I got a real kick out of, one of which was actually issued uh, by a business that was located just down the street from where I was living. It was actually, it was on the same street that a place I was renting uh, was cool. located. So local token collections also have the upshot or the potential upshot, at least, of being interesting to non-collectors. Because take myself, for example, if I assembled a collection of really interesting Massachusetts trade tokens, I put them all together, I could go to all of my friends from Massachusetts and say, hey, you know, check out all of these tokens. They were issued, you know, they might be issued in towns where my friends and I have either visited or lived. They might come from towns where we've gone to school. They might, anyway, it helps because if people have a personal connection to a particular place, and if you have a large collection of material from that place, people might say, oh, wow, not only is this collection anchored in a particular place and time, but it reflects you know, these evolving towns that we might know from our own experiences with them, but you can sort of track how the towns have changed, whether it's new business opening up or shutting down, whether it's commemorating a certain event in the town. I find that people are often very engaged by material with which they might have a personal connection like that. So if anyone is out there hoping to, to proselytize for the hobby or trying to convince people outside of the hobby that numismatics is a worthy hobby and a worthy pursuit, those kind of collections can actually be really good for that. So from a PR aspect, there's something to be said for collecting local trade tokens and local metals and other sort of local objects as well. So they are by no means a trivial pursuit. <laughs> Speaking of trivial pursuit, it's time for me to get the answer from you and to and to ask a new one. I owe you a trivia answer. That's right. So uh, the last time we had a trivia question, the question was, when did Canada strike its first silver dollar for circulation? Now, this is a novice level question. I know you know the answer. When <laughs> did Canada strike silver dollar for circulation? Remarkably enough, I do know this. That would be 1935. That is correct. Now, what was 1935? Uh, this is a gotcha. It was King George V Silver Jubilee. I That's believe. right. 25 20... years on the throne. Correct. You got it. That's a long time to sit on the throne. So... Well, I mean, hey, that's nothing compared to Elizabeth II. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. Um... <laughs> I mean, she, she passed. She passed sixty a little while ago, didn't she? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 just keeps marching forward into into history every day. So uh, yeah. Earlier, we talked about a president with three initials. 
sort of. We referenced the 1933 double eagle, which was, uh, you know, FDR was the president then. So let's look at another president who has three initials, and this is JFK. And this is a good one because it comes up, conspiracy theorist tie two events together. The question is, what paper money was first released four days following President Kennedy's assassination? So this is a a well-known sort of, again, novice level. It's well-known in many circles, the supposed relationship between his assassination and this object appearing. It's curious. There's no evidence that suggests that it's merely speculation and conspiracy. Nothing has ever been tied to it, but people like to talk. People always look for a reason. So now you're job is to figure out what I'm talking about. And and not just you, Chris. Fire up the old Google machine. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> cheater. Cheater. <laughs> cheater, cheater, pumpkin no, I, eater. I kid. So, yeah. Hey, dude, pump, pumpkin's great. Pumpkin bread, pumpkin pie. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'll ponder that. And, you know, people can eagerly await uh, our answer. But in the interim, I would like to um, encourage everyone to keep on listening to the podcast every week and subscribe if you haven't. If you enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed any of our previous episodes, please keep on supporting us. Keep on listening. You know, and again, we've we said it before and we'll continue saying it. If you want to reach out to us for any reason, we love getting emails from people. We try to respond as promptly as possible. And, you know, we appreciate any listener engagement. So keep on listening. Remember to subscribe if you want to and you enjoy it and you want to support us. There's one other thing you need to keep on doing, though. And what is that? We always end with keep on collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Hey everyone, it's Brian again, reminding you to check out our free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. The offer expires on May 31st, 2020, so head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial or follow the link in the show notes today.